Welcome to Deep Dive Into Five, where we answer your most common questions on a clinical topic. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer for NACE, and I'll be your host for this program, Deep Dive Into OAB and the Elderly, Your Questions Answered. Joining me is my friend and colleague, Dr. Matt Rosenberg, who is the director at the Mid-Michigan Health Centers in Jackson, Michigan. He has a special interest in the medical management of urologic diseases. In fact, in 2011, Dr. Rosenberg was appointed by the AUA Office of Education to serve as coordinator of primary care education and was the editor for primary care guidelines for urologic disease. Welcome, Matt. Greg, good to see you. Happy to have you here. So Matt, this program has five questions in less than 15 minutes. Are you up for it today? I'll see what I can do. <laughs> All right. I'm sure you will. Give me your best. So let's, yeah. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's kick off with how does our primary care clinician really distinguish between LUT symptoms in a male patient who has a prostate that makes things a little bit more challenging? Yeah, that, that little old prostate gets in the way of all sorts of things, doesn't it? So the way we do this, Greg, is we have to determine, to, well, to understand abnormal, we need to understand what is normal. What does the bladder do and what does the prostate do? The bladder holds urine and empties urine. Hopefully it does it in a comfortable fashion. It's going to fill up about three to 500 mLs and then comfortably it's going to empty three to 500 mLs. You're not going to have to rush to the bathroom. You're going to be able to get there comfortably. You're going to have a good stream. That's normal. Abnormal is when we have small amounts. We're not voiding three to 500 mLs. We're not voiding 250 mLs. We're voiding 100 mLs, 50 mLs, maybe 150 mLs. It, the bladder is not living, living up to its capabilities. And as a result, you get these symptoms. You get frequency, you get urgency, you get nocturia. Very common. We should remember that nocturia is actually an OAB symptom. It's not a BPH symptom, which most people think about. So you have these symptoms and you're voiding small amounts. So urgency, frequency, nocturia, small amounts, that's the bladder. What about the prostate? The prostate is there for fertility years. It creates fluid for seminal emission. Unfortunately, after fertility years, it kind of gets in the way. And the prostate, as we get older, is going to grow. If it grows out and doesn't block the ure urethra, we're fine. Unfortunately, it tends to grow into the urethra and it, block it. it blocks it. So imagine mud in a garden hose right? You got that sludge in the garden hose and now your garden hose isn't able to empty very well, all right? It sprays, maybe it dribbles out of the garden hose and the same thing that we see with the prostate. So the prostate, a normal prostate is all about good flow. What is the arc of your void? We live in, I live in Michigan. We have a lot of snow. I, I'll ask my patients, can you write your name in the snow and script or braille? And if it's braille, the prostate might be part of the problem. Actually, probably is part of the problem. All right. So it's all, <laughs> I know you love that line. Greg. So it's really all about flow. All right. So if the flow is good, the prostate's OK. If the flow is bad, think prostate. If it's you're avoiding small amounts, think bladder. And if you're avoiding frequently of large amounts and you have a good flow, think about an overproduction issue. And then that gets to the kidney. Great. Thanks, Matt. That's really helpful to break it down that way. Let's jump into question number two. What's really necessary for our colleagues to do a complete evaluation for patients with LUTs or OAB symptoms? Let's try to break it down for them so they know exactly what to do in their practice. Well, great question. And, and this is why primary care is so paramount to this whole situation. Because when you look at overactive bladder or BPH or whatever's causing LUTs, you've got to look at the patient in whole. What brought them in? 
All right? Okay, the patient says, I'm voiding frequently, I have nocturia, I'm maybe leaking a little bit. And the question I always ask is, why are you coming in today? What's happened over the last couple months? Because generally, these patients will have had this problem for a while, right? And this is where we as primary care providers really are important here, because we need to look at the whole patient. We look at their history, then we look at their medical history. Is something going on? Maybe they're on a new hypertensive medication. Maybe their diabetes is out of control. Maybe they had recent surgery, general, you know, maybe they saw a urologist or a gynecologist. Maybe their social history has changed. Maybe they're drinking a lot of alcohol. Maybe something, somebody told them it's a good idea to drink a lot of water during the day and that increased the amount. Now they're noticing more of a problem. So I'm not saying that these are causing the bladder problem or the prostate problem, but they may be accentuating it. And that's where we as primary care doctors come in and do such a good job. A physical examination, we want to make sure to do a neurologic examination. Do they know to get to the bathroom? Can they actually walk to the bathroom? Okay. That's important. An abdominal exam, we're looking for masses, we're looking for ten, uh, tenderness. And we want to make sure to do a general urinary exam. I know our patients are kind of concerned about that sometimes, but you know what? They're coming in with a voiding problem. We want to make sure the voiding apparatus is okay. So on a female, do a vaginal exam, make sure there's no atrophy, no, there's no prolapse, uh, either rectal or bladder prolapse. Make sure the urethra is open, that there's nothing blocking the urethra, block the emptying. Do a rectal exam, make sure there's good tone, there's no masses, no constipation, no lesions. Similarly, for a guy, you'll do the rectal exam, but also make sure to do the, the examination of the penis. Is everything normal? Is the meatus open or is there a stricture? Or maybe you see phimosis. And finally, for labs, make sure that you look at the urine. urine. You want to make sure there's no infection. You want to screen for blood. You, I don't use the urine for screening for diabetes because you have to have a blood sugar of 180 before it's spilling into the urine. So I'm going to use a fasting or a random blood sugar. You do all that, you don't find anything abnormal. Now we can focus on the bladder about volume or the prostate about flow. Matt, I think that's real helpful and thanks for clarifying, but just let's focus on one point and that's really sometimes it's patient and provider reluctance to proceed with the genitourinary exam. How do you counsel your patients that are hesitant to have you do that exam for them? Yeah, you know, unfortunately they go to Dr. Google and when you look at that, then you see that all of a sudden, oh, I don't have to have this exam anymore because that's what you see out there and that's not true. That's not true at all. We need, they're coming to us because they're having a problem voiding. We need to look at the voiding apparatus. If they say, well, somebody else did that exam, I will make, a, you know, I don't mean to be snarky on this, but I'll make a comment. Well, that provider may have done the exam, but I didn't. <laughs> and, and you're asking me to treat this, so I'm going to make sure to do it. Because I've caught a lot of things here. We talked about that exam earlier. I've, taught, I've seen, I've caught vaginal atrophy. I've caught tumors growing it from the, the vagina into the urethra, rectal prolapse, bladder prolapse, and men, phimosis, phimosis uh, meatal stenosis. You know, so you do want to make sure to do that. That's our job as good providers. So I will tell the patient, look, you're asking me to help you and I want to do my job and I want to do my job right. Great. Thanks very much. I think that's uh, all good points. Let's move on. This next question is really a two-parter. There are two main classes of drugs that are available to treat our patients, beta-3 agonists and anti-muscarinics. Can you help clarify the key differences for our colleagues between those two classes? Sure. Let's start with what they do. Okay. The antimuscarinics are on the bladder. So are, are sorry, the muscarinic receptors are on the bladder. So are the beta-3 receptors. The muscarinic receptors, when stimulated, facilitate contraction. The beta-3 
receptors when stimulated facilitate relaxation. So the medication classes either block the muscarinic receptor, thereby blocking contraction, or they facilitate, they, they stimulate the beta-3 agonist and facilitate relaxation. All right. Both of those mechanisms allow the bladder to hold more. Remember, the symptom of OAB is you're voiding frequently or you're having nocturia or you're having incontinence of small amounts. So we're trying to increase the amount that is in the bladder. All right. The antimuscarinics have been around a long time. You have the immediate release and the extended release. The immediate release had a lot of side effects and really good drugs. They were very efficacious. So are the, the extended release, but there are side effects. You see the dry mouth. It's worse with immediate release and with the extended release, the extended release do better. You worry about constipation. You worry about dry mouth. You also worry about some of the cognitive issues with the antimuscarinics. You're probably familiar with the beers list. Unfortunately, all of the antimuscarinics are on the beers list. So that is a concern for us. Uh, in terms of the beta-3s, they're two in the class. They're relatively new. They, when st stimulating the beta-3 receptor, it facilitates relaxation. That's what we know. The nice thing is both medications are very clean. You do see some side effects, you know, like uh, UTIs, URIs, bronchitis, um, but you don't see a lot. It's very low. So I, I, I think of those as very clean drugs. There's a few differences between the drugs uh, in terms of titration, in terms of crushability, and in terms of hypertension. So we can talk about that later. That's a good segue, Matt, because that is the newest class that I think our colleagues are using. And I wonder, between the two agents, Mirabegron and Vibegron, if there are any key differences that they should be aware of. Yes. So um, when we look at the differences within these drugs in the beta-3 class, again, they're both efficacious. So pick the right medication for the right patient. Uh, in terms of Mirabegron, which was out there first, it's a titratable drug. It's not uh, crushable. Okay, which is a concern for some of our elderly patients. Uh, it goes through mix of CYP2D6 and 3A4. So 3A4 is an open pathway. CYP2D6 is narrow, so we want to be careful with that. And it has been noted to cause hypertension. It's in the label, so we want to be cautious. Vibegron is not a titratable drug. It is crushable, which means it's a little better for the elderly patient who can't swallow a pill. And there is no hypertension in the warning. Great. Thanks for that clarification. Let's move on to our next question, and this may be uh, one of the most important is, is there a particular treatment protocol that you would recommend for our colleagues that are managing patients with OAB? Sure. Well, first of all, we ask. We ask if they're having a problem, we want to evaluate this, because unfortunately in primary care, we don't tend to ask about this, so a lot of patients suffer needlessly. So I really encourage that. I start with behavioral modification for all of my patients, and when I say that, it's understanding bladder hygiene understanding that we want to learn how to facilitate appropriate emptying of our bladder, which means relaxing when we void, right? Emptying, count to 10, void again. I actually recommend to a lot of people that sit on the toilet. It's okay at night, sit on the toilet, relax, count to 10, take a deep breath and void again. And, and actually to everyone listening today, that's a challenge because I'll bet, I know you're all going to void at some point today. And I would challenge you, Count to 10 and void again. I bet you get a little more out. All right. Using uh, Kegel exercises are very important. Watching how we take fluid is very important because sometimes we tend to be abnormal drinkers at certain time. 
for example, like we're coming home from the office at five o'clock, we're drinking the triple latte, you know, then we get home and we're just borrowing the triple latte. We're going to have to give it back. We see the same with excessive alcohol use at certain times. When I pick the medications, and I always start with behavioral modification, but when I pick the medications, it really depends on the age of the patient I'm doing in the comorbid state. Really, if you're, if I'm not worried about cognitive issues, it's a fair game for all the medications. I don't like using the immediate release antimuscarinics because they're so fraught with side effects. So, but I could use either the antimuscarinic claxes or beta-3. If they're older, then I'm going to only be using the beta-3 because I am really worried about the cognitive issues. And from there, I'm looking at their comorbidities and picking which one. Great. And just to clarify, your definition of older is what? Older than I am. <laughs> 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 Fair question. I go by the age of 65. You know, anybody over the age of 65, I'm really going to start worrying about cognitive issues and I'm going to lessen. I'm going to be aware of that when I use the medication. Great. Thanks very much. Final question, Matt. Are there any situations where you might use a beta-3 in conjunction with an anticholinergic agent? Yes. Absolutely. We have two receptors. Why not use them? And I think that using low doses of meds are going to eliminate the side effects that we may see from any of the meds. As I mentioned, the, uh, the, the beta-3s are very clean. The antimuscarinics do have a few more side effects. So if I have to use an antimuscarinic, I want to use a low dose. I feel if I use them in conjunction, I'm going to be doing a lot better. Uh, we learned a lot from our world of hypertension. You know, when you and I were in school, and, and again, you're much older than I am, but when you and I were in school, we learned to maximize out the antihypertensive medication. Now we know differently. We like multiple drugs of low doses because we decrease the side effects. And I see, think we see the same thing when we're using the beta-3s with the antimuscarinics. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Matt, we are out of questions and out of time. You get a gold star for your timing today. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and share your expertise on OAB, not only identif identifying those patients, but already uh, also manage them. This was a lot of fun. So thanks for being here. You bet, Greg. Thank you. It's always fun to be with you. If you're interested in learning more about overactive bladder, you can go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for any of our other enduring activities on OAB or any other program we've developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other programs and content that we share. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this activity. I hope you've learned something new that you can bring back to your practice. We look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future. Thanks so much.